In this edition of the podcast, Matthew Sleeth's A Drone Opera has been reimagined, this time as a cinematic installation. We talk with the artist himself about this iteration and where to from here. The government's new art portfolio has taken effect, but with no art in the title. University of New South Wales Associate Professor Lizzie Muller explains how students of current art courses are dealing with how the arts are considered by Canberra. And is this the right time to take a punt on your art? Artist and PR professional Yoram Vanderstar has invested in his own confidence, opening a studio and gallery in Sydney's entertainment quarter. I'm Tim Stackpole and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again, and it's welcome back to the podcast prize wheel to help us choose the order of our interviews. And also welcome back Pixel Perfect Pro Lab for supporting the prize wheel and making the transcriptions of the podcast possible. You might remember way back I was contacted by those who love art but are hearing impaired, wanting to enjoy the podcast in print, which is of course possible by downloading the transcript at www.insidethegallery.com.au. And on that note, for all your professional photographic and print reproduction needs, of course, check out the folks at Pixel Perfect Pro Lab. Now, they're phenomenal at getting your requirements perfect every time. Their website is www.pixelperfect.com.au. So, as is the tradition, I'll use a whiteboard marker to write the names of our interviewees on the prize wheel. Lizzie Muller at UNSW, Matt Sleeth and his drone opera, and Yoram's gallery at the EQ. Okay, here's our first spin. And we've landed on a drone opera, which according to originator Matthew Sleeth was always imagined as a sensory experience for an audience to encounter often abstracted ideas like total surveillance, military violence, or our fear and fetishization of new technologies. The two-week installation of a drone opera at Lion House Museum Galleries in Kew in Victoria is a cinematic installation of the work. It features two monumental 66-panel LED screens mounted on trusses and presented as sculptural objects, kind of evoking a rock concert with four speaker stacks to amplify the sound. The multi-channel installation occupies the entire central gallery of the Lion Museum Galleries and is on show for a limited time from the 14th to the 29th of March. And Matthew is on the line using WhatsApp. Thanks for joining us on Inside the Gallery. Our pleasure. Now, a drone's opera, there seems to be a lot of focus in the content on surveillance and technology, and to a certain extent, the fear that that can evoke. Was there a particular time in your history or in the history of the world that motivated you to create this piece? I guess the project has had a long history. It's, it was originally a, a gallery project, an idea I was going to do with my gallery in New York while I was living there. And it really came more from an interest in camera movement. And I was sort of became interested in drones through an interest in camera movement. So oh, a lot right. of my previous video works are about moving cameras around on motorbikes or steady cams or right. other ideas, sort of a choreography of camera movement. But I sort of always been interested in the way the military kind of co-ops technology or develops technology and its relationship to kind of a civilian use of that. Mm. Also what it really means for all of us when everything's developed by the military. So, yeah. the, you know, internet and drones and radar and everything else. So there wasn't really a, a kind of a, a real moment. There was a moment. So the original project was a drone in a gallery. Like the gallery was going to let me put two canvases at each end. Um, Claire Oliver in New York, it's sort of quite a long gallery. 
Yeah. And it was going to be a canvas at either end and the drones would fly around as a performance for the opening night and they would paint with paintball guns as <laughs> as you did it. And then the mess yeah. would stay up. And this is a long time, so maybe like 2010 yeah, when it was still very new. And and we got a long way down the track and, it, and then the gallerists told it was illegal and they weren't allowed to do that. <laughs> That you're, not, yep, you're, not right. to, you're not allowed to arm drones in America, right. unless you're the government, of course. And so they were going to do it in Australia, or I was going to do it as part of a um, new media festival here, and then we ran into the same problem, mm. slightly different problem, but the, a, around arming mm. drones. And then it sort of morphed into more of a, a and and these was, this was sort of again more of a gallery idea that was going to have a band that was going to have music. And then sort of the narrative came from wanting to change it to a longer piece. So the person that ran the New Media Festival that we were thinking that I wanted to do it at was Jonathan Parsons, who then became the director of Experimenta. Yeah. And so hearing I said, look, let's do it now, but let's do it through Experiment. But it was going to be previously free. And so this one was, well, you've got to sell tickets and it's got to be longer. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I went away. <laughs> so what would I be, you know, what's the narrative that drives that and what's the way to contain the aesthetic and the formal elements that I was interested in yep. and fuse them with like the you know, kind of conceptual and narrative elements I was interested in. So the idea of surveillance, relationship with technology and also military violence at the time yep. was was very prevalent. So we sort of, you know, with Kate Richards and John, uh, Jonathan Parsons and, the, and you know, Robin Fox and Susan Frickberg, the, the composer, yep. sort of came up with this idea of a triangle that would contain those ideas and each point of the triangle would be featured in each scene right. and all points of the triangle would be contained in each scene, but one would be privileged. So the idea, you know, those three points would be this new reality of constant surveillance mm. that we're all under. Mm. And that was sort of around the time of Snowden and the revelations yeah. that actually everything was being collected. Yeah. And the idea of military violence, and I guess that period was that this was being developed, which is you know, 2012, 13, 14, is the height of Obama's drone program. Yeah. And just always being aware of a society where we're always being watched. And then the third one was drones are a great metaphor for talking about our relationship and our fetishization and our fear of all technology. Yeah. I can remember at that time, everyone, you know, drones were becoming more of a thing in the news as well. And so you would hear all these kind of things on the news about people being terrified of drones and drones were going to be watching us when we were sunbaking naked in our backyard. Yeah. And that kept coming up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, yep. I remember. I love, yeah. uh, it's so good to live somewhere where everyone's worst fear is they imagine themselves sunbaking <laughs> in the backyard and there's a drone. So that was all those kind of ideas converged and that time converged to be the beginnings of drones, the drone program and military violence and the Snowden revelations that were always being watched. Yeah. So now you transform that into a, a physical exhibition and installation. Can you describe what the visitor experiences when they come to see this? Yeah. So the, the first iteration of the project when it was commissioned by Experimenter was a live performance. So it was in a theatre and you would come in in the dark and you were placed in a cage and you would, for your safety essentially, but also to increase the anxiety of the work, yeah. and you would watch the performance. And so that was um, with some amazing collaborators. I just knew I would never get everybody together again to tour. It was so hard with everyone's schedules even making that one season work. Yeah. And 
I also thought it was, you know, difficult and technically really difficult to do and took a lot of trust mm. from everyone involved. Mm. Mm. And we had some, you know, three amazing singers who, opera singers, who were professional opera singers who all had really packed schedules as well. So we sort of made a decision that rather risk doing it again, not in a way that we were happy with, we would make a video installation that was what how it lived on. Right. And experimental were very supportive of that. Right. So so very early on, two years out, we knew we would do that. So I had two feature film cinematographers, Sherwin Akdazabar and Dave McKinna, mm-hmm. that I'd worked with in the past, had filmed everything from development rehearsals, dress rehearsals, all the way through to all the performances with multiple cameras, as you would film a feature mm-hmm. film. And just this was the set, they were the actors. But we were kind of very determined to make it, you know, that it didn't become documentation of a performance, mm-hmm. that it was really a, actually a video installation that was the the world of a drone opera. So the world that we created visually, the lasers, the, you know, the music. So the video installation includes work from the development, from rehearsals, and things that didn't end up in the performance uh-huh. to be stuff that was part of the, the whole process. So it's really sort of the a video installation of the process of making that. And then we realized at the end was anything that was from the performance really took you out of that world, right. the cinematic world. So there's quite a lot of VFX to remove the audience, remove anything that is clearly theater. Wow. Given the, I mean, the length of time that you put this together, are we talking about a development period of, of six or seven years? Is, is that how long it is taken to actually get to this point now? To this point, it's about that. It took two or three to get the live performances up, and that was 2015. Mm. And then just every year we would miss out on one grant, which was about six grants. <laughs> yes. And so we'd, yeah. you know, it was also part of Arts House's program, and they'd save a spot in the program for yeah. us. And then every year it would end up being fall that. over. Yeah, okay. It would fall over. And so in the end, experiment, it just sort of came to the party and said, look, we'll just make this happen. And that's how it happened. And then it's taken five years to get it to this stage, yeah. I guess. I mean, it was four, really, because it was Carriage Works last year. Is this presentation the, the the ultimate depiction of this piece of art? Do you feel now that you've completed it with this? Yeah, absolutely. The, the kind of idea of this being, in a way, how it was always meant to end. I mean, mm. the, the reason it took so long was was two reasons. One was it was really hard to edit and really hard to make because there wasn't a logic, narrative logic to it where one thing caused the other. It is roughly the sequence that the performances were in Mm -hmm. and the scenes happened in as such, but it's not exactly not everything's in. And there is a sort of a short film film festival version that was at the Sydney Film Festival last year. Right. And so I really wanted to take it as far as I could to say, you know, I thought, I'm never going to get a chance. It's, it's unlikely I'm going to need a chance to do a project where I'm going to be able to see what, you know, what a work requires in front of a live audience and the way an audience responds with a body in space in front of them. Thinking about what that needs when you transform that to a gallery where you can walk around and you can come and go and you have multiple screens. Yeah. And then thinking about what what actually does an audience need in terms of duration and narrative when they're in a cinema locked into a seat. And so that was a really wonderful thing to be able to think about and experiment with. Considering, you know, you are an artist and not necessarily a a songwriter or a musician or or known to be that, how did you come about getting the opera to come together in in this piece? Yeah, I mean, I'm not someone who has a lot of experience with opera. In fact, I hadn't been to one before this, but I knew I wanted 
to do something that had a human conductor of the emotion. So when we started developing the work, it was actually with ballet dancers and we were going to have dancers and the drones. You know, when we were doing development, it didn't quite work and the, the dancers in a way somehow did something very similar to the drones. Mm-hmm. And so we had the idea to try opera, something Baroque and intense and as sort of full on as the, as the drones and the laser sets, but a totally different emotional register and it actually ended up working really well. So I worked with um, Susan Frickberg, which was sort of a wonderful collaboration. She's an experimental musician and an opera composer from New Zealand. And we came up with this idea that we would find the libretto from the actual drone pilots. So we found these CIA training videos of how you train drone pilots. So these quite camp videos of actors <laughs> pretending to be drone pilots. Right, right. And in like fake sets and yep. stuff. It's actually really funny. And um, it's a lot of the libretto is taken from the call and response way that drone pilots are trained and, and the kind of almost sporting kind of rhythms that they have. Right. They almost sound like sports commentators. Uh-huh. And so when they're talking about what they're seeing, it's just kind of quite removed, but almost kind of like awe in the spectacle of it. And that's what we've sort of used through the, through the libretto. I mean, that, and Susan's done a remarkable job. It's been a really, you know, amazing collaboration. I've really enjoyed it. So from a performance perspective, also on the last day of the exhibition, we've got two musicians that are doing a response to the work. So with the gallery, we were talking about how we might be able to incorporate live performance into the installation without maybe simply repeating some of the things that are already in the installation, Mm -hmm. like the the opera singing. So I asked two performers who I have a lot of respect for, experimental musician and and guitarist Dave Brown, who uh, performs under Candle Snuffer, and Nat Grant, who's a drummer and percussionist, to each come along with to a performance on the last night and respond with the video installation. So the video installation will be playing with its normal soundtrack, and each of them will do a performance that is a response, either a noise guitar response or a percussion response, to to the work. And where do you take it from here, Matthew? Do you, do you pack it up and and put it away as part of something you've done in your life now, or take it on tour even further? Yeah, I think this is, this feels like the end for me. It feels like everything that I've wanted to explore in this and everything, all the ideas that we started discussing have taken it as far as they can now. And um, yeah, time to move on. Well, it, it sounds like quite the job, Matthew, and congratulations on and having the tenacity and the patience to get it to this point. I look forward to having a look at this and um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. That's Matthew Sleeth talking about his drone opera underway at the Lion House Museum Galleries in Kew from the 14th until the 29th of March. Head to lionhousemuseum.com.au for more details. Two interviews to go now and the Pixel Perfect Pro Lab podcast prize wheel will choose between Associate Professor Lizzie Muller and Yoram's Art Tea Gallery. Here we go. And we're talking about the federal government's vanishing of the art within the Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Communications. No mention of the arts at all. That became official on February 1st, and we discussed this on the podcast late last year. But what further impact can we expect from this, and how are current students of the arts now managing their aspirations? Associate Professor Lizzie Muller from the University of New South Wales is a curator specialising in audience and collaborative cultures. And she joins us now via WhatsApp. Associate Professor, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, in terms of your position on this, what's your take on the significance of removing 
the arts' own portfolio and, and how will this affect the arts sector? So for me, the removal of the name is a highly symbolic act. Mm-hmm. And of course, those of us working in the sector know that um, you know symbolism can be very powerful. I do think it's um, representing a broader view in the government that arts and culture are not a top line issue. Um, and I think that that view has been reflected and been shown to us over the past couple of years. Uh, as the kind of funding and public investment in the arts has been reduced, but also in a kind of a lack of any really coherent or strong policy around mm. the arts. So in that sense, I don't think it it should have been a surprise, though I know that many of us in the sector were very surprised that it was thinkable that um, the name could be disappeared in that way. Mm. Um, but actually, I think the signs were already there. And so overt in a way too, although the government has said that it's business as usual, it's just a change in the name. But are you taking that just as lip service? Oh uh, no, I, I think I absolutely agree with them. It is business as usual, and I think business as usual in this current set of government priorities is not great sure, for the arts. Sure. So I think that business as usual, as it has been performed and demonstrated over the last few years, shows a kind of a lack of interest in what culture can do for society and how culture contributes to the broader public. Mm. And I think also a lack of an understanding, sadly, of the great importance of investing in the cultural sector and the returns that you get from that investment. So I think business as usual is probably a really great way of putting it. I think um, what that signals is unfortunately there's going to be an ongoing lack of the kind of brave fresh innovative thinking that is always needed in cultural policy so um, we know that when governments put culture at the heart of their agenda we see really exciting and innovative new ways to support the arts emerging and those ways don't necessarily need to be more expensive they Mm. just need to reflect the changing world the role that culture can play in helping societies adapt to that changing world Um, and when we see those kind of exciting policies coming out from governments, we also tend to see an upswing in cultural activity and a great increase in social well-being, but also in the um, kind of perception of that uh, country overseas. So we know that it's also really great in terms of our international profile. So very sadly, I think it will be business as usual. And I think that that's not great either for the arts nor for the broader society. Yeah, that's that's a great way of, uh, of laying it out on the table. But is the arts to a conservative government somewhat of a threat? I mean, why is there a lack of interest? Why is there a lack of support? That's a really huge question mm. and probably, um, you know, a bit beyond... <laughs> Uh, to some degree, the scope of the conversation. Um, uh, we could we could go on about this for a long time with a gin and tonic in the pub. Um, but I think it's not so much a question of threat, although um, I think there are probably lots of people who'd have opinions about that. Mm. I think there's an idea and there's a rhetoric of practicality and efficiency, um, which I think needs to portray the arts and culture as an indulgence or as a luxury item. Right. And I think that that need, that rhetorical ideological need, is not reflected in the evidence that we have for what the arts and culture actually do practically for the public. So we actually know that the arts and culture contribute a great deal, Mm, mm. uh, both in things that you might consider their intrinsic worth, but also in terms of other measurable qualities like quality of life, mental health. Yeah. Um, so there are there's lots of good evidence that already exists that there are fantastic practical outputs. It's not just a luxury item. Um, but I think it's important for this government's argument making to suggest that the arts is 
yeah, somewhat of an extra, an optional extra. If we think about what uh, a discussion I had with members of the MEAA in uh, December's edition of the podcast, talking about figures where the arts sell more tickets than sporting events in Australia, the arts employs more people than the mining industry. Do you think there's often a mistake, there's somewhat of a misunderstanding of what the arts represents within society and perhaps how uh, ingrained it is, how embedded it is in everything that we do? I think there absolutely is, and I think that there is data to support that. And I know that the Australia Council um, recently released research that showed that although, um, and I think the numbers are right, that 98% of people report being involved in some kind of an artistic activity, mm. like their kids going to play an orchestra mm. or they're listening to um, listening to classical music or they've read a book or been to the movies. Mm. Um, at the same time, they will also report a belief that the arts is not for them. So <laughs> yes, interestingly, yes. there is a kind of a, I don't think that the misapprehension sits only with politicians. I think that the reason politicians can get away with the rhetoric of arts as an optional extra is because the sector itself has probably not done a good enough job of mm. communicating with the public really clearly about the value of arts and culture in a way that the public can hear and believe. Um, so I think that's the crucial thing. And so I think if there are any lessons to take home from this moment, um, you know, beyond just kind of railing and being cross, yeah. um, one of the big lessons is really to start listening to the public and hearing what they say about their own impressions and perceptions of the sector, of the arts, and what it means to them. Because I think if we can start to hear more clearly what the public is telling us, we can actually improve public relations, if you like. So um, the perception of the sector uh, to create really a more accurate understanding of how valuable and how powerful the sector is. And then hopefully in the future, politicians won't be able to get away with this kind of a move without the public standing up and saying, hang on, we need we need arts, we need culture in our lives. Because um, that's really, I think, the important way to counter problems like this at political level. I know that lots of people have done stuff in terms of advocacy with the government, but unless the public is standing up for you as well, I think that advocacy is never going to be able to achieve what we want it to achieve when mm. there are ideological problems. Mm. And, and indeed, you know, the public does participate. Think about Adelaide Festival, Fringe Festival, Sydney Festival, Sydney Biennale this year as well in March. I mean, there's great participation in all of these things. But as you say, it's kind of like people misunderstand that this is the arts, you know, or art is not for me, and yet still participating in comedy festivals around the country or and going to see bands, you know, even at that level of appreciating the arts, it kind of still gets lost on the population's psyche. You're absolutely right. So the public are participating in droves. So that kind of suggests that there are plenty of really good, high quality, brilliant art experiences out there and available. Um, so why is it that that perception kind of still still persists. Um, and that may be in the way that we talk about the arts. It may be, and I think this is um, really interesting when talking on a podcast like this, it may be that in terms of the media, we're not doing a good enough job of really talking to people about art and about what's happening in the art world. Mm. I always think to myself when I listen to kind of daily news, how you know you wouldn't get through a day of listening to news without hearing an update on what's happened in sport. Yes. Um, but yeah. you're, you're rarely going to hear an update on what's happened that day in the art world. Yeah. And um, you know, as you say, I think people often kind of portray it as it's either sport or art. And I don't think it's that way at all. I think sport and art sit really brilliantly together as important things that humans do to build community connections, to create better, more mentally 
healthy societies. So I don't see us in any way as in competition with something like sport. But I do think there's a lot to learn there about how we can present what we do as part of the fabric of daily life. And I think sometimes people get... um, Uh, persuaded by the idea of of marketing art like it is a luxury item and I think even some of our galleries and kind of top end art experiences use that as a way of kind of making people feel like this is a treat or Mm. a special occasion Mm. and certainly some of the prices of top end art experiences would suggest that they are luxury items so I think that there is actually a lot that the sector can do to make itself more accessible to people and to really start to confirm that idea that art is part of daily life in the same way that sport is. Now, you are an associate professor at the University of New South Wales. You have students coming through various art courses who are faced with this situation of there not being a dedicated arts portfolio. How are you approaching that as an institution and how are you dealing with students' mental health in response to that? For me, one of the things I notice is the generation of students who are coming up currently um, through the Masters of Curating and Cultural Leadership, for example, are really inspirational in terms of what they see as the opportunities and the potential for themselves to lead, even as very young practitioners, even in their early 20s. So actually, I think it's it's more a question of what we've got to learn from them than what we should be teaching them. One thing I really notice about kind of our most recent graduates and current students is they don't wait around uh, to be given a grant. They mm. don't wait around to be given a legitimate position of power within the arts world. Mm. If they see an opportunity, if they think something should be done then they get up and do it and that includes things like you know generating new arts critical platforms kind of online places to discuss art generating new venues building the kinds of infrastructure they need I think there's always been a tradition of you know artists run initiatives um, but this generation really seemed to be often I think quite fearless in terms of just putting themselves out there and of course they have now a whole new raft of digital tools that allow them to make connections you know internationally directly with audiences which I think has energized that generation and I also think that this generation of arts practitioners are inspired um, by or kind of working with quite often the emerging generation of environmental leaders so we can see that also in the environmental movement young people are really kind of leading new thinking, new ways of making their voices heard because they are perceiving a lack of leadership or a bit of a void of vision. And so I think that there is something that this generation can teach us about just saying, right, the government's not supporting us. They're not helping us out. We're going to stop asking or being reliant on their support and instead start generating the initiatives that we need to generate ourselves. Yeah, well, you sound pretty positive, Associate Professor. It's been lovely to speak with you on the podcast and thanks so much for making the time. Thanks very much. Great conversation. That's Associate Professor Lizzie Muller from UNSW talking about the vanishing of the arts within the federal government's portfolio restructure. No need to spin the Pixel Perfect ProLab podcast prize wheel as we move now to the business of art and private galleries with Joram van der Star, who has taken the courageous move of establishing a gallery and studio in Sydney's Entertainment Quarter, which is housed in the same precinct as Fox Studios in Moore Park, and that's situated in Sydney's eastern suburbs. It's a bold leap in the current economic climate, but Joram has the confidence to make it work. I caught up with Joram at his Art Tea Gallery and began by asking him how he came to this point. Um, what led me to come here, I studied graphic design because I thought 
art is not a commercial way to make a living. When I moved to Australia, I started my own business doing graphic design. My wife already owned a PR company. And over the years, um, we decided to join forces with me working back end in the PR company. And in that, we touched a lot of a lot of clients we've worked with were in the art industry. Uh, we worked with Craig Ruddy before and after he won the Archibald. We've done projects like Vivid Sydney, Chinese New Year. And as a result, I feel I know the art industry. And with my kids getting a bit older and me having the headspace again to start painting again and follow my, follow my passion instead of just doing what I need to do to make a living, I decided that I've got, now got the time and headspace to pursue my art career. And why did you choose this particular space here? It almost looks as if you've got three shop fronts here on Ben Street at the Entertainment Quarter. The reason is foot traffic. Like, the Entertainment Quarter is a precinct that has been dead for quite a few years, and it's starting to pick up with the types of restaurants and places that are moving into the space. And I wanted a space that's accessible for the everyday person. Like a lot of the galleries cater specifically to the elite art market. And what I wanted is an accessible art gallery where everyday person, the everyday people can wander in and have a look around. And if they fall in love with the piece of art, can buy it. There is more than just the gallery space here, though. As I said, the studio space is here too. How many other artists do you have working with you here? At the moment, we've got three other artists. Uh, we're looking for two more artists to, to join our to join the space. So the way I've set it up, I've set up the art gallery as a not-for-profit, and with with the idea that setting it up as a not-for-profit and making it as a vehicle for different artists to establish themselves to be able to regularly exhibit and put their work out there and at the same time have a space to work from. So that way we keep overheads to a minimum by not having to pay staff to mine the gallery and by using resources from all the artists involved to run and make this gallery successful. And in terms of the other artists that you would like to attract to the workshop, I mean, who, who would that be? I'm really looking for artists that can see the opportunity and have that business mind to think, all right, I'm going to jump on this. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to make it happen. Because I find that a lot of the times people are good at what they do, but they're not necessarily business people. I think at the end of the day, it's about creating opportunities for yourself and not waiting for others to make it happen. And... That's why I've set up this space and that's why I'm inviting other artists to join me in creating those opportunities. By sitting back and making the most beautiful art, when you're not reaching anyone with that art, you're not going to be successful. By waiting for someone to discover you, you're fully depending on other people to make your success. And I think what it comes down to, it's about creating your own success, creating your own opportunities and that's what I've set up here, and that's what I'm trying to create a platform for the artists to join with me. I'm seeing different forms of media here, paintbrush work and also ceramics. Is that the type of art that you're seeing is, is popular with the foot traffic that's coming through? It's very wide and varied. Like, 
ceramics is a no-brainer because it's low entry and it's a way to get people into the gallery. And at the same time, we've sold things from small little original works to, to larger paintings and all of that stuff. I think it's important to be able to cater to a wide range of people and a wide range of interests because a lot of people are intimidated by art galleries and by only having $10,000 plus works, you're cutting out a whole range of people that would be interested, that have wall space that they want to fill up, but that would not necessarily walk into an art gallery because they feel intimidated. Even here we've noticed that people standing at the door and you have to tell them, come in, come have a look around, because there is that perception of art is for the elite and everyday people feel intimidated. And that's what I try to create with this gallery by putting it in this location, by providing a different range of things to sell from pottery to cheaper prints and the more expensive artworks. The point that you just made about art being for the elite and trying to get people to come into the gallery, I mean, it really is a type of inherent problem, maybe that the whole art industry, if I can call it that, yeah. seems to suffer from. You say putting your art gallery here is to try and overcome that here in the entertainment quarter, but are there any other strategies that you think you may employ in order to try and touch people when it comes to not only presenting art to them, but also selling art to them? Have you got any other ideas in terms of perhaps your approach or your marketing? Well, that's where my PR background comes in. Like having run a PR company for the past, like the, the business is 20 years old now, I've got the experience to reach out through mass markets and a lot of times it's too expensive for artists to pay for a PR ongoing PR campaign. It's the same for, for gallery owners with the margins, with the rents, with all the other costs of running an art gallery. It sort of gets put to the wayside and it, there is a great opportunity there to reach a wider market with the right messaging. I always say it doesn't matter what businesses it is, but in, in this case, you could be the best artist in the world, but unless people know your work, then it's lost, yeah. it's never seen. So marketing is, is important, irrespective of whether you're an artist or yeah. whether you are a dealer or whether you are a car mechanic, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. We've just recently seen in the news about a, a major German grocery store setting up in Australia and then pulling out before they even opened up a store because they don't see the economy as being very buoyant. They don't have a positive outlook as to where Australians can and if they can spend their money. Is this the right time to be opening yet another art gallery in such a prominent space, opening another studio up when people don't seem to have the money to spend, when people, as you say, step back from art because they see it as elitist. Do you have a different mindset to the rest of the art world in terms of making this step? I really believe that it's more about seizing opportunities when they come up. Like it's been about a year and a half in the process of securing a space here in the entertainment quarter. And Economy goes up and down. It goes in waves like over the decades and all of that stuff. But I don't think necessarily a time when the economy is a bit slower is a time to not take risks in business. It's about taking calculated risks, looking, all right, if it doesn't succeed, what am I meant to lose? And by setting it up in such a way that it is a low risk venture by having studio space that you rent out to artists, 
by having a gallery space that's meant by artists. You keep the overheads low and it's a low-risk strategy in order to try and establish yourself. Normally, we would see spaces like this in Sydney anyway, in places like Marrickville, for instance, or Sydenham. This would be viewed as being fairly high-end and fairly prominent. Have you really mitigated the risk by coming to such a high-profile spot? I think part of the problem with the places like Marrickville, art is slowly moving out further and further from the suburbs where people have money to spend on art. And by having a space, a gallery space in a prominent spot that is easily accessible, that is central, that's got other things going on. So you've got regular food traffic from music concert to sports games. You have a whole other demographic that normally wouldn't trek out to Merrickville, try to find a parking spot 10 blocks away from the space where they're planning to look at art. So that creates an opportunity to reach out to a far larger market than the traditional spaces. Well, Joram, I applaud your entrepreneurship. I hope the venture goes very well and congratulations to the other artists who've already moved in here. And thank you so much for speaking with us on the podcast. My pleasure. That's Joram van der Star talking about his recent established RT gallery at Sydney's Entertainment Quarter. And there's more details, of course, at www.rtgallery.com.au. And that is the podcast for now. Don't forget to like and share our Facebook and Instagram pages to keep updated on all the things that we love. And you can find the links at our website, www.insidethegallery.com.au, where you can also subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, transcripts of our interviews can also be downloaded from there as well. And thanks to the folks at Pixel Perfect Pro Lab as well for their support. I'm Tim Stackpool, and again, reminding you that when you're in the gallery, remove your backpack, okay? Bye-bye for now.